If you need a Bible, be sure to lift up your hand and our ushers will get one to you. Luke 6, verse 46. And if you're visiting with us, we're studying all the way through the Bible. We find ourselves, or all the way through the book of Luke, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And I have entitled this sermon this morning, A Secure Foundation. Let's read together as Luke writes, and he says this, and Jesus is speaking here, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like the man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you've given us here, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for such a great salvation that you have provided through your son. Lord, I pray that we would walk with you and that we would exalt you, Christ Jesus, to the place that you deserve in our lives, and that we would just be so grateful and thankful, Lord, for all that you've done for us, recognizing that we are saved and that our sins are forgiven, that we have everlasting life, and that we will live with you and fellowship with you for all of eternity. Lord, let our hearts be just full of these things as we praise your name, as we turn now to the word To be taught by you, we ask that you would just use this word, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to deeply impact our lives so that we would get a sense, a greater sense, every single time that we come before you of who you are and what you deserve from us, Lord, that we might bless you and serve you and praise you and glorify you. Thank you for today. We ask your blessing upon this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, to understand this passage of Scripture, like all passages of Scripture, we need to understand the context in which it is given. Because the context of the verse sets up the meaning of the verse. And that's why we study the Bible verse by verse and line by line as we go through it. Because it gives us the context. So many ministries today and churches today, they'll come up with a topic and then they'll pull a Scripture or two out of context and they'll try and make it say what they want it to say. But when we work all the way through the Bible, it keeps the verse in context. So what is the context with what we're giving here? Jesus, remember, has been giving us the Beatitudes in this section of Scripture. That means the blessing and the exaltation of the Lord. He has given us the qualities that the Lord blesses and the deficiencies, that is, the aspects of rebellion or disobedience that the Lord curses. And that's why with the Beatitudes, Jesus said... Blessed is the man who, and then he also said, woe to the man who. So he gives blessings and he gives the cursings of the Lord. Now, in that context, he gave us some parables. And remember, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, he warned about the blind leading the blind. When a blind man leads another blind man, they will both fall into a ditch, Jesus said. They're going to do damage to themselves. And he was talking about this world. We live in a world that is covered with a thick blanket of darkness of sin and people can't see. 
And philosophically, morally, spiritually, the leaders of this world are blind leaders and they are leading people into a ditch, a spiritual ditch that leads to eternal punishment and consequence. And Jesus gave the warning, don't follow blind teachers. Don't follow these false teachers. And he also gave us the parable of the tree and how we can judge the tree by its fruit. That you can look at a life and you can come to a righteous judgment, a righteous conclusion about that life by what that life produces and the fruit that comes out of that life. So that is the context that we have here. This is the life that God blesses. This is the life that demonstrates the righteousness of God. This is the life that will withstand the test of time. Now, here, we see a parable that Jesus gives of two foundations. The man who built his house upon the rock and the man who built his house upon the soil, upon the earth, without a foundation. Or we might say, the man who built his house upon the sand. And that's exactly what Matthew calls it in his gospel. So we're speaking about foundations here. The foundation of the life that the Lord blesses, and the foundation of the life that the Lord curses, that the Lord does not bless, that the Lord is going to judge. You see, the security of our life depends upon the security of the foundation upon which our life is built. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? So Jesus begins here by saying, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? Why do you call me Lord when you do not do the things that I say? Now, Jesus is speaking to that individual who is listening to his teaching and his ministry and agreeing with it. And then their heads are nodding and saying, yes, Lord, but they're not doing what he says. And he's speaking really to his disciples here. Remember, when we think of disciples, we think of the 12 disciples. Jesus did have 12 disciples that he called out from a larger group of disciples Those who he would take aside and he would train and pour into their lives specifically and very personally to raise them up to be the 12 apostles, except for Judas, of course, which became the betrayer. But yes, he had 12 disciples, but he also had a much greater number of disciples that were following him, that were listening to him, that were sitting under his teaching. He was saying, why do you call me Lord when you do not do what I tell you to do? That's like a lot of people today. There are a lot of people in the world today who will say, yeah, Jesus is a good guy. He's a good teacher. He's a prophet. He's a great man. Oh, yeah, I really all about Jesus. That's good. He's a good teacher. You call him Lord, but you do not do what he tells you to do. Now, prior to this, remember that Jesus was teaching about the overt dangers of sin and rebellion, and hypocrisy, and he was warning his disciples, he was warning the people not to follow the false teachers of this world, these blind guides. But now he turns to his own disciples, and he begins to instruct them, the people who are following him and affirming him, and Jesus challenges them directly. It's fascinating. Another little tidbit of evidence for us that the Bible is absolutely true, and that Jesus is a true teacher. He is not a false teacher. You see, if Jesus were really a false teacher, he would be much more concerned about gaining a following than actually giving them the truth and risk offending them. Because a false teacher, he looks at the crowd that he's building up and that's where he gets his his background. That's where he gets his strength by the fact that he has built up this following and he can point to them and say, this crowd verifies that I am a legitimate teacher. 
But the fact is, Jesus takes his crowd, he takes his followers, and he exposes them to the truth. He refines them by the truth, even when he risks offending them. Jesus is not flattering them as a false teacher so often does. And that's what this world does, doesn't it? I mean, even look at the political realm. Politicians love to flatter their constituents. And constituents love to flatter their politicians because it is a tool, it is a mechanism for manipulation. I mean, if you can get a guy to go along and butter him up and make him feel good, he is more likely to do what you want him to do. And that is a very effective tool in the world. But Jesus is teaching the word of God. He's concerned with the truth. And Jesus is the living word of God. He is the truth, as he said. And the word of God does not flatter us. It does not manipulate us. It does not pacify us. The word of God challenges us. It exhorts us. It reproves us to die to our flesh and to live for the Lord. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what we see with him. He's training his own disciples in righteousness, even when it might be offensive because he is refining them in the truth. And so he asks this very penetrating question to them. He says, why do you call me Lord when you do not do what I say? That's a great question, isn't it? Why are you calling me Lord when you're not following my instruction and my command? Now, the word Lord in the Greek is kurios, and it means master, it means owner, it means ruler, and it's quite often given or used in the context of a master with an estate and with slaves. Now, remember... Rome at this time was awash in slavery. As many as a third of the population of Rome, and some even speculate that that number was higher, almost a third or more were slaves in the Roman Empire. So they knew what the word kurios, what the word Lord meant. When you have 30% of your population that are owned by someone else, they understand the word master. Now the Christian life, is defined by many different aspects of our relationship to the Lord. We have these many different facets and words that are used to describe our relationship with the Lord. For instance, it is correct to say that we are the children of God. That is absolutely correct. It is correct to say that God is our Father, and that through Jesus Christ we have been brought into the family of God. Very correct, a very proper way to term our relationship with the Lord. And sometimes Christians will misunderstand that, and they'll apply that to the whole world. And they'll say, well, the whole world, we're all children of God. No, no, not at all. Only those in Christ are in the family of God. But to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are only children of God by our faith in Jesus Christ. So that's a proper way to to define us. It's another correct way to define us as co-heirs with Christ. That we will inherit all of the riches that Christ inherits. Just with him, we are co-heirs. It is correct to call us as the church, the body of Christ, as we are his hands and feet in this world. It is correct to call us, the as the church, not as individuals, and the men say amen to this, as the bride of Christ, okay? That applies to the whole church. And that is a correct way to define us. It is also correct to call us Disciples, the followers of Jesus, the students of Jesus. Makes perfect sense, and we're called that in Scripture. It is even correct to call us the beloved of God, as God loved us so much that he gave his own son to die for us. 
This is all absolutely proper and accurate in defining our relationship to the Lord. But there is one word and there is one description that Paul uses that can be and often is received as offensive and insensitive and divisive. And it's the word that Paul used to describe himself more than any other word. And quite often it is not so easily received by the body of Christ in this modern connotation. And the word that Paul uses is doulos. And that is the Greek word for slave. And that's what the word means. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. We are, as Christians, the slaves of Christ. And it does not matter that that word is culturally insensitive or that it is offensive to some. That is a correct biblical term as the Bible uses it. And that's exactly what Paul says. We are slaves of Christ and he is our master. And that understanding is very key to our salvation. And Paul makes it very clear that Jesus is Lord, kurios, master, and we are his slaves. As Paul said to the Romans in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that is, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, our proud and self-sufficient nature, we don't want to hear that, do we? We don't like to hear that Jesus is the master and that I am the slave. We'd like to think of it in different terms. Well, I'm an associate of Jesus. You know, a little associate of Jesus badge. Or I'm an independent agent. You see, Jesus owns the brokerage and I kind of work for him. I report in every once in a while, but I kind of do my own thing. That is not a biblical description of our relationship to the Lord. Yes, we are his children. Yes, we are in his family. But we are also slaves of Christ because he is the master. Now, I know that can be very offensive to some. But after you've walked with Christ for a while, it's not offensive to you. If you're a young Christian or you're put off by that term, ask somebody that's been walking with the Lord for 40 or 50 or 60 years and ask, what do you think about that term? And they'll tell you to a man, to a woman, that is not offensive to me because Christ is the greatest master that I could possibly have. He's a better master to me than I would be to myself. He leads me on the paths of righteousness. I so often want to stray. I would do damage to myself. I would do damage to my family. He prevents that. He leads me in the ways of righteousness. He loves me. Most masters of this world, what do they do? They exploit their slaves for their own gain. They would have their slaves die for them. I serve a master who died for me. That's how much he loves us. Jesus is our master. And he's the greatest master than anyone could have and here's the question jesus is saying how is it that you call me lord but you do not do what i as the master tell you to do how come you don't obey me how come you don't obey my command it is a gross contradiction it is illogical On the one hand, you call me master, you pay lip service to me, but you do not do with your life what I command you to do. You see, the lordship of Christ for the Christian is not an optional issue. It is imperative. He must be lord of our life. There's a movement going on in the church right now. A movement to separate the salvation of Christ from the lordship of Christ. They're teaching that, yes, Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. And these are two separate things and they're divided and they're not the same. 
Now, if you haven't heard this, you will. It's coming to a Christian near you, and you're going to be caught up in this, and I want you to be prepared for it, and I want you to know how to stand against this argument. And the argument goes something like this. Well, if a person believes in Jesus, and they pray a prayer, and they say, yeah, there's this guy, Jesus, who died on the cross, and I have this intellectual understanding of him, and he died for my sin, okay, yeah, I can pray that prayer. And I say, all right, I believe this, and I ask for forgiveness of my sin. Okay, now that person is a Christian, though there is no evidence of change in their life. Though they continue to live in the world, they don't leave any of their sin, they continue to walk after the things of their flesh, well, then they're okay because they've made this verbal commitment. That is not correct. It is not right. They're saying that as long as a person has made a verbal confession and they've trusted Jesus, or so they say, as their Savior, and they continue to live in the world, and they continue to live in sin, that's fine, because eventually, over time, and through a process, they will eventually get to the place where Jesus is Lord. But as long as they've made that confession, as long as they have this intellectual belief, then they're Christians, and they're going to heaven. Someday, we hope that they will get to the Lordship of Christ. They're only in stage one. We hope that they'll come to stage two soon. Now, the critics of this doctrine, and I count myself a critic of this doctrine, we call this easy believism. It's this idea that if they just have this easy belief, they just pray this prayer and mouth these words, that there needs to be no evidence of change in their life, and they're fine, they're on their way to heaven. But it's a gross contradiction of the doctrine of faith. Because all the way through the Bible, we see from James, Jesus, Paul, even in the Old Testament, that faith is always demonstrated or evidenced by the works that come out of our life. Real faith, genuine faith, will produce real evidence and real change in a life. And that's why the first words of Jesus in his ministry were repent. Repent. The word repent means to turn away. It means to change your life Change your mind, change your heart, change your direction, leave the things of this world, and now embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, as your master. Now, obviously we're all growing in Christ. We're being sanctified. None of us has reached that place of perfection yet. But we must renounce our sin, flee from the world, and embrace Jesus as Lord. And we need to understand that as Christians. His true salvation Genuine saving faith means that Jesus is both Lord and Savior of our lives and that you cannot separate the two. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's why Jesus is even addressing the subject of lordship. That he must be Lord and there must be evidence in our lives that demonstrate that fact. Jesus tied lordship to obey, obedience. Jesus said, if I am your Lord, you must obey me. You must obey my commands. Because everyone in this life is going to have a master. And Jesus is saying, I must be your master. Now, a lot of people would hear that and say, what do you mean everyone has to have a master? What are you talking about? Not me. I'm free and independent. I live for myself. I don't have any master. Remember in the uh, late 60s and the 70s, for some of you, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But for late 60s and uh, early 70s, there was that whole hippie movement. And some of you may have been caught up in the whole hippie movement. Remember the kids that grew their hair long and they just rebelled from the whole structure of society and they were tearing down the establishment. They were saying, we're free. We have no master. We're breaking away from all of this. 
But then when you kind of gathered them all together, you went, okay, you guys all look the same. You're following a system, aren't you? You do have a master. You're being led and guided just like everyone else is. You're not really breaking the mold. You're fitting into a mold. Everyone has a master. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Told that to his disciples. If you love me, keep my commandments. Your love for me will be evidenced by your obedience to me, he says. The author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 5, 9, and having been perfected, he, that is Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To all who obey him. He defines those who are saved to, by those who obey him. The ESV says in John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes is the same as he who obeys. Belief and obedience are equated as the same by Jesus. You see, Jesus ties lordship to obedience. And Paul, in his epistles, tie salvation to our lordship, just as he told the Romans, that you must confess that Jesus is Lord. The two are inseparable. So salvation, true salvation, is evidenced by our lordship, or by the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, and lordship is evidenced by our obedience to Christ. That makes sense? This is important. We've got to understand this. So Jesus must be Lord, and it is demonstrated, his lordship in our life, by our obedience to him. And that is essential. Now, you may hear that and look at that and think, that's merit-based. You're talking about earning your salvation. If you obey Jesus, then you're going to be saved. No, no, no. Turn it around. If you believe in Jesus, if you have faith in Christ, you will obey him. That's the correct way to put that formula. That's the equation. When you place your faith and your trust in Christ, it will be evidenced or demonstrated by your obedience. You see, we are saved by grace through faith. By God's grace and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't separate those two. And that faith is demonstrated by our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. True faith makes Jesus the master of everything. As we turn away from our sin, as we turn away from our flesh, as we turn away from this world and we submit ourselves to Christ. Now, we will stumble and we will fall. And we need to ask for forgiveness. And we're all still being sanctified. And this is a growing process in the Christian life. None of us has arrived at that place of perfection. But that's the true mark of a real Christian. When we do stumble, when we do fall, when we do trip up, we ask for forgiveness. We all ask, need to ask one another for forgiveness. When we offend each other, when we do something wrong to one another, don't we? We ask, need to ask the Lord for forgiveness when we sin against him. But that's just it. We turn away from our sin, even when we fail and we receive and we follow and we demonstrate the lordship of Christ by our obedience. And so Jesus is asking the crowd, and he's asking you, and he's asking me today to search our hearts. If you call me Lord, if you call me master, do you demonstrate it with your life? Is it expressed in how you live your life? 
Is your life a testimony to the Lordship of Christ so that your friends and your family and your neighbor and your boss and your cousin's cousin, when they look at your life, do they know that Jesus is Lord? The searching question. It needs to be asked. It needs to be asked of us individually as Christians, and it needs to be asked corporately as a church. Because there's a lot of disobedience in the church today, the American church. And I have heard, and just like you have heard, the same thing. Hundreds of people over my lifetime say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I, I love that whole Christian thing. Oh yeah, Jesus, good man. Oh yeah, I like his teaching. Very good. They affirm themselves with their mouths as Christians, but there is no obedience in their life when you look at that life. They live exactly like the world. The American church, sadly, today has become a disobedient church in a disobedient age as we are unrestrained by the commands of Scripture. We're off doing our own thing. And then we make excuses for it, why we don't have to follow the Bible. And we give it academic terminology. And we say, well, this is just an academic reason that I don't do what the Bible says. I was talking to an individual, not from this church, but from another, of course not from this church. But from another church, and um, they're talking about this false teacher that's very popular out there, and he was, uh, he's written a few books, very bad, and um, some of the people at his church like this author, and they're passing out these books, and I said, whoa, do you know who this guy is, and you know what he's done? Do you know what he's done in his own personal life, and what he has affirmed? And the guy said to me, well, yeah, but that's only if you hold a certain view of scripture. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, not everyone believes that the Bible is infallible and errant. Some people just believe that the Bible is authoritative. And so, you know, we can't take all of this stuff literally. You call it what you want. That's just disobedience. You put any academic title that you want on it, that's just an excuse to disobey the word of God and to cut out the portions of it that I don't like so that I can live like this world. It's disobedience. We have pursued so often in the American church the priorities of this world. We've chased these aberrant doctrines and then we have the audacity to claim that we are true disciples. No, no. True discipleship, true salvation, a true child of God means true obedience to the word and the command of God and there is no escape for that as a Christian. It's a question that we all need to answer because all of us will give an account to the Lord someday. I'm not kidding you. For those of you that have been in college, you know you like to know what's on the test. You like somebody to say, oh, hey, this is going to be on the test. I'm telling you right now as your pastor, this is going to be on the test. You are going to stand before the Lord someday, and you will have to give an account of your life. What will he say when you stand before him? Will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? And by good and faithful, we mean obedient servant there. Is that what he'll say? I can't answer that question for you. Only you can answer that question in the quietness of your heart. What will the Lord say when you stand before him? Well done, my obedient and faithful servant. Or will he say to you, depart from me, I don't know you. You weren't one of mine. I was not your master. I was not your Lord. Your master was this world or this culture or popularity, or riches, or wealth, or whatever it is, but you did not follow me and my word. I don't know you. Depart from me. What will the Lord say to you? And that's what Jesus is challenging this crowd to consider, to examine themselves and ask, does your life, do your actions match your words? 
When you call me, Lord, do you live like it? You see, calling Jesus Lord, by definition, means that we will obey him. If you're here this morning, and you confess yourself as a Christian, and you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, does your life validate your confession? Could we call in people that know you from around you and put them on trial on the witness stand and say, does this man or does this woman live for the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the evidence in their life and what does it produce? Jesus here is challenging us to examine ourselves. Is he really Lord? And then Jesus says in verse 47 there, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation of the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Now here's another timeless and wonderful illustration of Jesus. It is pertinent, it is explicit, and we understand it 2,000 years later. It's not like we have to go back to the Greek to try and figure out what this says. Well, we don't understand what that means. A house without a foundation that would crumble in a storm. I'm not really sure what that means. Of course we understand what that means. Very applicable today. You've seen um, those pictures or uh, those videos of a house built next to a river that doesn't have a strong foundation. That river comes up and the Swollen water begins to erode the foundation. I was just watching some this week as I was preparing for this sermon. And literally whole houses just going right into the water and over as the water carries them away. So we understand what Jesus is saying here. Building needs a foundation. And the bigger the building, the more solid foundation that it needs. Now, have you seen that those pictures of New York City... In a skyline with those massive skyscrapers all built so closely together. They're at the southern end of Manhattan, the financial district, Wall Street area. And you look at all those skyscrapers. It's where the World Trade Centers used to stand. They're building the new replacement building. And they're all going up. And you just think, how in the world can they build all of those skyscrapers so mighty, so large, so closely together? And none of them fall over. How does it happen? Manhattan Island is literally bedrock. Literally bedrock. And so they'll explode and carve away and chip out of there these areas. And then they'll secure the concrete foundation to the bedrock itself. And that's what allows them to build such numerous skyscrapers so big right there close together. Because their foundation is literally bedrock. Even in the valley here where we have sandy soil, we still know that a building needs a foundation. And so contractors, when they build a house, even a single story house, They have to lay down a substantial foundation. They have to dig about 18 inches down and lay 18 inches of concrete. And then on the edges, they'll dig down even further and they'll pour up to 24 inches of concrete to give that house a sure foundation. And if the foundation is not solid, the house will not stand. We know that. Eventually, the storms will come and there'll be shifting soil and wind and rain and even earthquakes. And it's going to bring that house down. But Jesus mentions something here. He mentions a flood as water beating against the house. And he says the house without a foundation is going to come crashing down. It will be destroyed. He says there in verse 49. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation. 
against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. And we know what that's like. We've seen it. Houses tumbling right into the water. On October 22nd of 2012, Superstorm Sandy hit the northeast coast of the United States, and it caused $68 billion, with a B, dollars worth of damage. 286 people were killed in that storm. And I know we saw it here on the West Coast in the news, but I go to the New York area a lot, and I was there, and I saw many of those homes. And it's just, it's really eye-opening when you see it for yourself. The waters rose, and they literally began to beat against those houses. And many of those houses did not have a sure foundation, and they just came toppling over and were completely destroyed. They were not built on a secure foundation. Now, the house that Jesus is talking about here is a life. It's a life. The house that is built is a life that's built. Now, you could say, as a secondary, in a secondary sense, that this is also applicable to systems and philosophies, into a church, into a culture, into a country. But Jesus is primarily speaking here about a life. About a life. Our life is like a house, and it's going to be built on something. The question is not whether or not you have a foundation. The question is, what is your foundation? What is your house? What is your life built upon and anchored to? And the foundation that Jesus gives here, that is rock solid, that is the bedrock, is the word of God, the command of Jesus. And we are constructing, when we construct our houses, our lives, upon the obedience of the Lord, They will stand. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, every single day, you're building a house. You're building a life. Just like a contractor out there putting that thing up, we're doing the same exact thing, but with our lives. It's under construction every single day. And the question that Jesus is asking is, what is your life being built upon? What is the foundation of it? Are you building upon obedience? Are you building your life upon disobedience? Is this good construction or is it bad construction? When you build a house today, and our contractors can, can verify this, when you build a house today, the city or the county will send out a building inspector to inspect every process of the building as you go along. You first pour that foundation, they come out to make sure that thing is secure, that it's set properly, and that everything follows code, and that a house can be built on it. I imagine they take measuring, measurings, get their measuring tape out, and they look at it. Okay, looks good, follows code. You can go to the next phase. And then you put the framing up, and then they go, look at that. All right, you can go to the next phase. Oh, wait a second. You missed a portion here. This doesn't fit code. You need to fix it. When we're building our life. The Lord is our building inspector. What would he say right now in looking at your life, the life that you're building? Would he say, very good, looks good. It's according to my word, continue to build. Or would he look at your life and say, whoa, we got some problems here. Tear a lot of that down. We got to start over. My goodness, this thing isn't even built on a sure foundation. We got to get this thing right. What would he say? The Lord is looking at us as we are building our lives in the Lord. You see, we need to let the scriptures search us. We need to read the command of God. We need to obey the word of God. We need to reject the wisdom of this world and this culture and the spirit of the age. And we need to submit ourselves to the command of Christ. Yield to his instruction. 
That's how we build our lives upon a sure foundation. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. And it proves his lordship when we obey him and his word over the priorities of this culture and this world. We are building a foundation upon him, a foundation that's going to last. You see, all of us have a choice. And Jesus makes it very clear. Are we going to build on the obedience of the word of God? Are we going to build our lives on obedience to the things of this world? To our lust, to our flesh, to our greed. How will we build our lives? Obedience builds a specific type of life. And disobedience builds a specific type of life as well. The obedient life is going to stand. And the disobedient life is going to fall. You see, there's a storm approaching. There's a storm coming for every single person. And there are only two types of houses. Jesus does not give us five and ten and fifteen different examples. He gives two. There's the life that's going to stand and there's the life that is going to fall. Which life do you have? Now, that begs the question, what is the storm? So if the foundation is the command of Christ, the word of God, and the building of the house is our obedience and the house itself is our life, what is the storm that is coming for us? Now, if I wanted to remain incredibly popular... I would say that the storm is nothing more than a personal crisis, a financial difficulty, a relationship issue. Jesus helps us through the storms of life. And he will help us to overcome the tragedies of life and the difficulties of life and the hardships of life. Now, there's an element of truth in that, and I'm not taking anything away from it. We all do go through storms, and not as a judgment from God. We just go through storms in this life because we live in a fallen world, we live in a sinful world, and there are hardships in this world. But it's true for every single one of us, righteous and unrighteous alike, we will go through storms. And Jesus does help us get through those storms because our eyes are fixed to him. He gives us an eternal perspective and it allows us to get through the difficulties and obstacles that we have in this life. So that is true. There's validity to that statement. And I know that many pastors teach it that way. I think it's a secondary interpretation and application to this verse. And many pastors even use it as a very convincing tool to explain why Jesus gives you a better life. And come to Jesus. He'll get you through the storms of life. He'll give you a happier marriage. He'll make you wealthier. He'll give you a better job. He'll give you healthier kids with bigger smiles and straighter teeth. I mean, come to Jesus. He makes your life better. But the truth is this. There's a storm that is coming. And these little minor storms that we go through in life are comparatively harmless to the real storm that is coming. The storm that is coming, and I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. The real storm that is coming is the judgment of God. It is the wrath of God, God's coming vengeance upon the sin and the rebellion and the wickedness of this world, and there is no shortage of it, and we know that. God sees it all, all through history. He's seen every murder, every theft, Every act of immorality. He's seen every rape, every molestation, every act of exploitation. God sees it all and he's going to judge it. It's in the Bible and it's very clear. Don't make any mistake. The sin of this world is going to be judged. It is going to be judged for all of eternity and it is that serious. And that's why Christianity is not a game. This is a matter of life and death. More than that, it is a matter of eternity. 
Only Christians, only we as the church have the good news for this world. And that's what the word gospel literally means, the good news. Because we are the only ones in this world that offer the hope, the hope of Christ, the hope of salvation, the hope of heaven, the hope of forgiveness. No one else, literally, no one else in this world carries that message. You see, we're all going to face the storm of God's judgment. But if you are in Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, if you have built your foundation upon his word, if you've lived in obedience to him as evidence of your faith in him, you will stand. When that storm comes, you will stand like a house built on solid bedrock. You will not be moved because you will stand in the righteousness of Christ. You see, Jesus, he already took our judgment upon himself. My sin, your sin, the judgment that you and I deserve, he took that to the cross and he died for us. He went in our place. He paid a price that you and I could never pay so that we might live. And that's why the cross is so precious to us. That's why Jesus... It's so highly esteemed by his church and we love him so dearly because he went in our place. He suffered and died so that we might live. Jesus took the storm of the Father's judgment on our behalf and he cried out upon that cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God poured his, the sin of this world and then the, his own wrath upon his son, because he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So because Jesus took that penalty, because Jesus gives us his righteousness, we stand on the rock of salvation. We will not be moved. We will not suffer loss. Jesus is our rock. He is the sure foundation. And David cried out in the Old Testament, our Our cry, even in the New Testament, the Lord lives, he said, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. And we say amen to that. And that's why we rejoice. That's why we're happy as Christians. Our sin debt has been canceled. It's been paid for. I'll never have to give an account for my sin. That's been removed. I'll give an account for my faithfulness, but not for my sin. Thank you, Lord. You've taken it away. We rejoice. Our names are written in the book of life, and we will stand. Now, we also need to understand that there's a flip side to that truth. It's not popular, but it's biblical. It's a flip side to that truth. The warning. Jesus is giving us a warning here. There is a storm coming, and every single life that has not been built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ will fall, and that life will come undone. That life will be examined in the light of God's holy justice and that life will come apart under judgment like a disintegrating house falling into a river. That life does not have the foundation that someone has built their life on Christ has. That life has been built upon the wisdom and the pleasure and the lust and the greed and the lie of this world. That life has been lived for self and that life will not stand before God. You see, this world and our own individual lives will not go on endlessly like this meandering stream in the status quo. And quite often people will say that. Oh, life's going to go on forever. The world will go on forever. And even when we die, we'll, we'll go to someplace like heaven or so, and we'll just continue on forever. 
It'll all be the same, right? No, everything in this world, every life is marching toward the day of reckoning. Just like the book of Revelation tells us. And I think it's no mistake that the book of Revelation is the very end because it speaks of the final judgment of God. Everything is headed toward that. God is the righteous and holy judge. And he will judge the nations and he will judge the cities and he will judge individuals. We all have a summons. We all have a court date to stand before him. And we who stand in Christ, we will stand strong because that holy and perfect and righteous God will find our names in the book of life. And we will stand. But if your name is not found in the book of life, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, if you've lived after the things of this world, in the judgment you will fall. And you will fall for all of eternity. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And that's why Jesus gives us a warning. And he thought it was so important that he put it in his word. And he wanted this word to be preached throughout the church age. So that everyone would heed the warning. We see this all through scripture, don't we? These warnings. Noah warned the people of God's coming judgment. He built that ark for 120 years. And though the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, I imagine that every day that Noah was building, he was preaching and saying, repent, God's judgment is coming. And they scoffed at him. Noah, you're a nut. You're building a big giant boat. There's not even any water around here. You're out of your mind. And that went on day after day after day. God, through Noah, calling out to the people, repent. They did not heed the warning. And when that first raindrop fell, it was God's judgment. And only Noah and his sons and their wives, eight people, were saved. They would not heed the warning. Lot was warned, and his extended family was warned about God's coming judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Only Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and eventually he lost his wife, were saved. They would not heed the warning. Judah, the southern kingdom, was warned again and again and again. If you continue in sin, you're going to be judged. They laughed, they scoffed, they mocked. They took Jeremiah the prophet and they threw him in prison. Shut up, Jeremiah. We don't want to hear it anymore. And sure enough, just as Jeremiah said, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they marched against Jerusalem and they killed literally millions. And those who survived were carried back into Babylon as slaves. They would not listen. Why do we not heed the warning so often given in Scripture God, out of his love and his mercy, he sends prophets to us. He sends his words to us. He warns us. And people say, oh, yeah, whatever. Whatever. Talk to the hand. I could have nothing to do with it. God's coming judgment. Don't miss this warning. The judgment of God is coming. And it's a flood that's going to consume everyone. And the man and the woman or the woman who hears the words of God and puts them into practice, and obeys as evidence of their faith in Christ, they will be saved, they will stand. That's a promise from Jesus. There's no need to worry, there's no need to fear. Heaven is your future. But, this is my concern as a pastor. You come to church, you call yourself a Christian, you nod your head when I teach, you say, yeah, Jesus is a great man, a great teacher. Yeah, he's Lord but you do not do what he says, it's a scary place to be, friend. You're sitting on the sidelines. 
and acting like a Christian, but you have never submitted your life to Christ and there's no evidence of obedience, that is a scary place to be. Don't be there. Take consideration. Heed the warning of Jesus. Repent and build your life on the solid foundation of the Word of God because every day we are building. We are building our lives and we are either building on a sure foundation or we are building on the sand. And that's why here in this church we preach and we teach and we hear and we read and we obey the Word of God because that is the only sure foundation. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Thank you, Father, for your word. And Lord, even when you've given us very hard and very good instruction as we've received, Lord, I pray that we as a church would take it and we would glorify you and that we would apply it to our lives and we would live for you, Lord, even when it's not popular in this culture. We know, Lord, that this word is what lasts. This word does not pass away. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And so, Lord, when we build our lives upon your word, we stand strong. And we know, Lord, this world is passing away. And I know it's tempting. We're all tempted by it, Lord. But I pray that we as a congregation and a people would stand strong, not chasing after the things of this world and the sin of this world, but that we would look to you, Jesus, and all that you give us in your word. And that's what we would build our lives on. And that's what we would build our church upon. Upon you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would just pour your blessing out upon this congregation, Lord. And that we would go out of here a blessed people. People who love you and serve you and know you and worship you, Lord. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for the salvation that you give through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.